This is the ACR 22 Daily Podcast Review featuring the Room Now faculty as they present to you their favorite abstracts and presentations from the meeting. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. My name is Yusuf. Uh, I'm reporting for Room Now. Uh, I'm uh, reporting from Leeds, United Kingdom, and have been joining the conference uh, through uh, as a uh, virtual delegate. Uh, today is the last day of ACR, and there have been plenty of uh, data um, uh, that have been presented. And one of uh, them that uh, caught my eyes is a late-breaking uh, abstract. Um, so the number is L08. Um, so I'm uh, privileged to be joined by Dr. Christopher Podgorski um, from Washington, uh, who presented the abstract. Hi, Chris. Hi, Chris. Hi, Yves. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, so uh, the abstract is about um, the early experience uh, on using Evushel in patient with rheumatic disease. Uh, uh, could you tell us uh, the rationale behind the studies and what were the objectives? Sure thing. Well, ever since the FDA uh, gave authorization under emergency use for um, tixagavimab, silgavimab, uh, tixil, or, or epichel, um, its use as a pre-exposure prophylaxis for rheumatologic patients has yet to really be uh, seen as far as the long-term efficacy. And so our goal was to bring to light at least six months of uh, continuous data to really help uh, show uh, meaningful use in, in our rheumatologic patients. Very good. Um, so uh, would you like to tell us um, what were your uh, methods, uh, study design, and the key summary of your outcomes? Sure. Well, this was a uh, longitudinal study of all uh, a variety of rheumatic diseases in, in our clinic at uh, Washington University in St. Louis. And uh, longitudinal in the sense that we followed forward 157 patients who had received Evasheld, uh, stretching from initial administration in January um, of 20. Uh, two all the way through August of 22. And we're monitoring for breakthrough COVID infection rates despite uh, dosing with the prophylaxis. And uh, this was all confirmed with retrospective chart review as well. And the, the outcomes and what we saw is that with the 157 administrations that we, um, patients that we had uh, administered, the drug with is that we saw 24 breakthrough cases, so about 15% breakthrough, which um, as our real world experience uh, and six month data um, had yet to really been borne out across uh, uh, other groups. And so wanted to, or appreciated having the opportunity to present uh, this at ACR. Oh, fantastic. Can I just uh, clarify uh, your cohort? Um, um, how many proportions of them were on B-cell depletion therapy? And, uh, you know, for instance, like myself in the United Kingdom, uh, unfortunately, our government is not funding the Evushel, uh, despite it's been approved by the European agencies since March. So I think you just want to know a little bit, uh, you know, for us, um, you know, what sort of uh, population of patients that you gave the Evushel? Uh, 
Sure. Well, of the 157 patients that eventually got Evisheld, uh, 37% or, or 59 of those patients were on rituximab. Um, so a fair number were actually on alternative uh, therapies as well. Uh, at our institution, the initial allocation being in uh, selected numbers was initially prioritized to the B-cell depleting therapies, um, but was eventually opened up to, to all of our patients. Um, and, yep. And in terms of uh, all of the patients, uh, do they have to be uh, like not mounting uh, antibody response or you can actually give people who were on immunosuppressive therapies? Uh, there, there were many people that were just on immunosuppressive therapies. Uh, there were a number of folks on uh, kind of combination therapies as well, steroids plus many other agents that, um, you know, it raises the, the, the relative level of immunosuppression in, in itself, we thought warranted uh, heavy shell. As additional coverage. So, so, yep. So, so the, the data looks good. It's only fifteen percent breakthrough infection, and I believe um, is it one or two se severe COVID outcomes that you've had in your cohort. The the vast majority of the the twenty four breakthrough cases were mild to moderate symptoms. Yes. Um, we had no deaths, two hospitalizations, notable trends with those two hospitalizations. Both patients were uh, receiving uh, rituximab. Uh, both had. Uh, additional comorbidities, um, uh, one patient underlying RA, but additional COPD, um, second hospitalization was uh, ankyovasculitis with COPD as well. So this is really uh, encouraging. Um, I think there's just probably just one more last question. Um, there have been concerns about, um, because this study was done up till August uh, and the uh, you know, variants are changing as well. Um, so what's, what's your view on that? And have you got any more plans to follow this patient up or, or even like repeat dosing you know, treatment with Evishel to see whether it's effective on the subsequent variants never ending? It, it, it's a very good question and a big problem for us. I think that um, the, the the subsequent dosing is a a worthwhile point to look into as well, uh, as opposed to the current recommendations that recommend six month interval dosing with Evisheld. We had seen uh, from our data that uh, after about three months uh, was the average uh, rate of breakthrough. Um, so whether uh, dealing with scheduling, um, but also you mentioned, you know, uh, evolving subvariants um, and possible escape from every shell coverage. And I, I think it's important to recognize that uh, moving target and, and maybe something that we need to talk about a updated monoclonal therapy, um, much, much like we're updating with our vaccines, if we can update our, our uh, prophylactics as well would be um, additional layers of protection for our patients. Yep, so fantastic. Uh, so thank you so much for your quick uh, summary of your, of your work. Uh, and I hope you enjoy um, our um, uh, in, in discussion today. Uh, and uh, please, uh, you know, tune in uh, to uh, to Room Now either through YouTube, LinkedIn, uh, LinkedIn, or Tweet for more uh, coverage from uh, ACR. Uh, okay, bye bye. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
Hello, everyone. My name is Yus Yusuf. I'm reporting for Room Now. I'm based at Leeds United Kingdom, and I'm, I've been joining uh, the ACR conference uh, as a virtual uh, uh, delegate. Uh, today uh, is day three of the ACR, uh, our last formal day. So uh, today is absolutely uh, jam-packed with uh, contents, and I'm privileged uh, to be joined by Dr. Marta Kazelmora uh, from the Mayo Clinic, Rochester. Hi, Marta. Hello. Uh, How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How about you? Good, good. Yeah. Thank you for, today, for having me on this yeah, interview. Absolutely a pleasure that in having you, Marta. Um, so today we'll be talking um Dr. Mora's um uh, abstract uh, number 1569. Um uh, in uh, the title is uh, long involvement in vexus. As we all know, you know, vexus uh, took a center stage when this uh, disease was uh, introduced uh, two years ago in ACR. So now fast forward two years on, uh, what have you learned? So uh, Marta, can you please uh, summarize um, the background of your studies uh, and your objectives? So uh, again, thank you for having our study featured um, in room now. Uh, this is a great uh, honor. Um, so we essentially, uh, we wanted to look to our cohort of vaccine patients, and we wanted to try to understand uh, the uh, impact of the pulmonary manifestations. As we know, uh, uh, lung infiltrates is one of the of the features that was initially identified by uh, the original uh, New England Journal paper and, and the uh, NIH group. And we wanted to better characterize that. Um, so it's obviously challenging to uh, uh, look into these patients because uh, these patients have been uh, going through a lot of diagnostic pr procedures and a lot of diagnostic uncertainty and uh, along the years before the, the disease was identified. So then we looked back to initially to our uh, 22 uh, patient cohort uh, and we wanted to see how many of them had um, a, a CT scan, a lung CT scan that we could actually look into and understand um, uh, what was the, the 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 type of lung involvement in these patients. Uh, so um, interestingly, we noticed that um, the most of the patients that had CT scans they actually had some some. Uh, um, lung involvement that could be characterized, mainly parenchymal changes, ground glass opacities. Um, and um, this is probably the main uh, feature of lung involvement in, in VEXA syndrome. Uh, then uh, also, um, there are some uh, pleural effusions, uh, some organizing pneumonia um, and consolidations. Uh, and Striking, it, it's not as as common to have uh, bronchial stenosis or um, uh, or um, more uh, features more similar to relapsy polychondritis, which would be something that we could actually think about. Uh, and so, uh, what is interesting is that uh, these ground glass opacities. Typically, they respond to glucocorticoids to high dose of glucocorticoids. 
but they not always uh, uh, um, with full resolution, uh, even in, uh, because these patients relapse even under uh, corticosteroids, uh, like high doses, like twenty milligrams. So uh, it, it's 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 interesting that uh, in terms of uh, respiratory manifestations, this is never or hardly ever. Uh, the main issue of these patients, they certainly have many of them uh, dyspnea at some point. Some of them cough, but less. Um, but if you don't do a CT scan, many of them will be missed because lung infiltrates are present in in less than sixty percent of 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 the patients in the in the in the X-ray. Uh, however, you have a, a, a higher prevalence around 85% uh, of parenchymal changes that can be detected on the CT scans. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, so the one of the uniqueness of your study uh, was because uh, you, you know you had you you look into the HRCT you know uh, changes. Mm -hmm. um, uh, was any um, did you look into the pulmonary function test as well? Uh, and was any you know, changes there at all? Yes. Yes, we did. We we did look into the the pulmonary function test. We 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 did look into uh, 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 lavage, alveolar lavage, and also we did look uh, into biopsies. But obviously, you know, these these uh, kind of um, um, procedures they they were done as needed for the diagnosis or to clarify their original diagnosis that. Um, and so not all the patients did uh, uh, these uh, even uh, uh, pulmonary function tests. Uh, and so our findings on those uh, are relatively uh, uh, unspecific. Uh, they, they are mainly restrictive and they, are, they mainly show uh, um, uh, uh, decreased D, uh, uh, DLCO. But, um, but again, it's a, it's a small, um, sample about, I think in that, so in those, uh, 22, uh, really not, not, not even half of them had, uh, uh, pulmonary function tests. So, um, it's, it, it, we, we still don't, don't know, uh, the extension or the degree of involvement, um, on, of, of pulmonary, um, involvement. We are, we are actually now expanding uh, our cohort and actually uh, try to characterize uh, this involvement better. Yep. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much. So I think that was about my last question, really. Um, so in terms of um, you know future research uh, in you know this unique population, um, you know what what else are you, are you planning you know for that? Right. We will. We really would like to understand to what. Uh, treatment do lung manifestation uh, or lung involvement they what what kind of immunosuppressant do they answer to because uh, these patients typically were exposed to many immunosuppressants and uh, uh, and uh, apparently this uh, neutrophilic alveolitis that appears to happen in 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 the lung and this autoinflammatory lung involvement um it, he's responsive to to corticoids, but not completely. And so, what we've 
been seeing is that uh, some some uh, of these patients actually the ones that are actually more symptomatic um, they actually re respond to jack inhibitors and to uh, tocilizumab or mm. anti-IL-6 I, I should say um, and this is actually very compatible with the cytokine profile that these patients uh, um, um, uh, show so the our our uh, really our next steps our future perspectives on, on this um, work is actually to better uh, characterize um, this type of response and and to by increasing our uh, court uh, also to better describe the the, the lung involvement uh, with the HRCT scans. Uh, that we've been looking into at. Yep. Uh, thank you so much for your insights. Uh, I think that's brilliant. I think uh, we learn more and more about this, uh, you know, disease, and I'm sure you know um, there's, there's more that we can see, you know, at uh, next year's uh, uh, conference. So um, I hope uh, that you all uh, enjoy our uh, video summary uh, of this research, uh, and you can follow um, Room Now. Uh, you know, through YouTube, uh, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And my Twitter handle is uh, U6 so Thank you. Thank you. Hi, this is Dr. Robert Chow reporting for Room Now from ACR 22. Um, and today I wanted to focus on uh, reproductive health in the world of rheumatology, especially in our current climate in a post-Roe v. Wade world. And uh, there's two abstracts I wanted to discuss. The first um, was uh, 1673. And this actually looked at the preconception exposure uh, in relation to the time of conception in our patients. This was a French study uh, that looked at a national cohort of patients with spondylarthritis. And overall, 200 some patients were analyzed. The median time to conception was 16 months. And these patients were treated with uh, an assortment of agents, including NSAIDs, steroids, conventional DMARDs, and biologics. And overall, they found that NSAID use and age were the only association with a longer time to conception. Uh, ironically, biologics and conventional DMARDs, uh, as well as disease duration, and smoking were not associated. Um, so I think overall, the study just tells us to be wary of NSAID use, especially in our female patients, young patients who are planning and conceiving, um, and try to minimize use. And I think it also uh, goes back to our old adage that, adage that we hear every time with reproductive health in, in our world, which is healthy mother and healthy baby. Um, so perhaps if we uh, do our best to control disease, disease state, um, periconception uh, time period, um, we can minimize their NSAID use. And the other study I wanted to focus on is a late-breaking abstract. This is L9. Um, and this study really looked at the impact access uh, of methotrexate in our patients uh, post-Roe v. Wade. So um, a few quick history lessons here. We know methotrexate is a first-line therapy for rheumatoid arthritis. We also know that in high doses, um, it can be used to treat uh, uh, miscarriage and ectopic pregnancies. And we also know that recently this summer, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, decided to overturn Roe v. Wade, and some states then enacted laws banning or restricting abortion. 
Um, this study assessed the impact of that decision on our patients with rheumatic diseases and their access to care. Um, they looked at the forward registry um, and specific about uh, 1,700 patients. And out of those patients, almost 400 patients attempted to fill methotrexate after the Supreme Court decision. Um, of those, 23 experienced a barrier to methotrexate access. Uh, most of them was a delay in uh, prescription refill by the pharmacy. Five of them were just told outright that because of the Supreme Court decision uh, and, and methotrexate has issues with pregnancy and concerns about abortion, they were kind of uh, at least delayed. Um, six had similar experiences, but they did not really have a clear explanation and had a uh, muscle, uh, much less sort of uh, acute uh, presentation by the uh, pharmacy. Um, so I think uh, obviously this is, this is uh, a really very recent development. We have to keep in mind that we need to advocate for our patients who need therapy. Uh, we need to educate them on what they're taking. And I think something that we can do uh, quickly to help them uh, at least maintain their access to uh, our drugs is perhaps just writing the, uh, you know, the purpose of the prescription um, to help the pharmacy at least understand why they're receiving these drugs. So uh, thanks for tuning in uh, to Room Now for coverage of ACR 22. And feel free to follow me on Twitter at Dr. RBC. Thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Katherine Dow. I'm attending the American College of Rheumatology Convergence 2022 and reporting for Room Now. And I'm very excited to share with you three abstracts that I found extremely interesting, and that might be relevant to your practice. So do you know how we order ANAs a lot? Um, well, there have been multiple guidelines saying, number one, don't repeat the ANA. Number two, don't order the ANA unless you have a suspicion of someone having a rheumatic disorder right? So abstract 1278, this is a population-based study examining the trends of ANA testing in the upper Midwest of the United States over the last 10 years. And they found 72,000 unique individuals who underwent over 134,000 ANA tests. 46% of the total tests were repeated tests. And the mean time between repeating a test is 2.7 years. Women were twice as likely to have repeat testing compared to men. Now, if you remember a few years back, the American College of Rheumatology and the Canadian Rheumatology Association partnered with choosing wisely in order to reduce healthcare costs. And they made this recommendation with rare exceptions, repeat ANA testing or ANA subserologies add very little, if any, clinical value to patient management, such as monitoring disease activity, confirming remission, or predicting disease flares. So do not order an ANA unless it's necessary, and also don't repeat it. Now, abstract 0228, this is very interesting here. It details the survey results of internal medicine residents on how they order ANAs. So they took a survey, 46 residents responded to this one survey conducted in May of 2022. Now, most of the residents, about 61% of them, ordered both the ANA and the ENA panel when they were evaluating somebody for a possible connective tissue disease. They just go out and order both ANA and ENA. And I don't know if you know this, but each one of those single tests in the ENA panel is about 20 bucks. And so that could add up. 
Now, 17% will only order an ANA initially, and that's such a low number. This is also interesting here. 74% of residents would not repeat an ANA in someone with a known ANA-associated rheumatic disease like lupus. So what about the other 25%? Why are they repeating an ANA in lupus patients with the known diagnosis? I don't know. And then 59% of them, and this is scary, would order an ANA for nonspecific symptoms as back pain, fatigue, and myalgias. Choosing wisely specifically said, don't do that. 89% of these residents, to their credit, were not aware of any recommendations for appropriate use of ANA testing. So bottom line is we got to do a lot better job training on medical students and our residents about appropriate ANA and ENA testing so that they won't repeat these tests. They won't order them unless it's absolutely necessary. Um, so there you have it. And then I want to share with you um, one more abstract. So this one's actually pretty funny. This is abstract 0058, and it's a quality improvement project. Okay, and this is with Lehigh Valley Health Network, LVHN. And what they did was they instituted a hospital order set for reflex testing to the ENA panel only if the ANA is positive at one to 80 or higher. Now they still allowed rheumatologists to order both, but they really restricted orthopedics, internal medicine, family medicine, and neurology. And guess what? They saved $26,000 over three months. So my take on this is leave it to the professionals. Let the rheumatologists order the ENA panel. This is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for Room Now. Follow me on Twitter. Hi, it's Dr. Artie Kavanaugh coming to you from ACR Convergence 2022 in Philadelphia for Room Now. A lot of interesting abstracts, a lot of therapeutic abstracts, also abstracts about the assessment of disease, including psoriatic arthritis. One that I particularly liked is about the Duet study, and this is abstract 2206. The title is Understanding Interrater Variability in Scoring of Athesial Lesions, Results from the Diagnostic Ultrasound Anthocytis Tool Duet Study. And this is from Lee Eaters, the lead in this from Toronto. And this is very important. Uh, ultrasound is becoming used much more commonly. Of course, it's very powerful at not only looking at the anatomic structure and changes in the anatomic structure, also looking at disease activity in terms of blood flow representing inflammation. Because all of us learn how to do ultrasound a little bit differently, perhaps, and because we want to use this as actual data, it's very important to standardize. And that's what this is doing specifically in psoriatic arthritis. So they looked at the rating across raters of anthesophytes, vascularization, bursitis, erosions, hypoecogenicity, calcification, and thickening. Not surprisingly, they found some differences from uh, very good inter-rater reliability for some things and a little bit less for others. So I think the importance of this, this study is ongoing. Uh, we're actually a participant in this. I'm at UCSD and my colleague, Dr. Abba Singh is doing this. Uh, it's very important. I think many of us, all our fellows are, are learning ultrasound. Many of us do ultrasound with the availability of smaller machines. It's going to be something we incorporate more. So we'd love to treat this as actual data 
and making an outcome measure for our patients, including those with PSA. And this study is a big step towards that. So important study. Thank you for listening. Hi, uh, this is Dr. Robert Chow reporting for Room Now, live from ACR 22. Um, and today I wanted to share a topic uh, about what happens after you stop biologics. As we know, um, this is a common question and commonly happens in our clinic. Um, and nowadays, you know, people are stopping their treatments, including biologics, for really a variety of reasons. And then the first and foremost being COVID. Um, infections, uh, lifestyle issues, maybe people just don't want to inject themselves every few weeks. Um, obviously, insurance issues plays a big factor. Um, and sometimes patients undergo procedures where the uh, you know, surgeon recommends they hold the biologic for a amount of a uh, period uh, um, of time. And some people just don't want to take it. You know, they don't want to be on an immunosuppressant um, for whatever reason. Uh, this study uh, was abstract 0427, and it was the COAST-Y phase three extension study uh, with uh, 155 patients with axial spondyl arthritis who were on Ixkizumab. And they focused on a randomized withdrawal retreatment period uh, through two years. And these patients already re re achieved remission with an ASDAS of less than 1.3 or had low disease activity. And at week 24, they were randomized to either continue their treatment of Ixkizumab or placebo. Um, and patients who then subsequently flared switched back to Ixkizumab the next visit. Um, overall, 36% of patients who were randomized to placebo never experienced a flare, while 28 patients or 52% did flare. Um, of those who did flare, 82% re or who were recaptured achieved a low disease activity, and 68% uh, had inactive disease after restarting Ixkizumab treatment. So I think overall, very interesting study and interesting data. Um, it does show that restarting Ixkizumab works. Uh, it helps doctors and patients alike um, who have to or need to stop therapy. It's uh, good evidence for, for that scenario. Um, I think overall, for me, it probably wouldn't uh, make me start or stop therapy like that. Um, because number one, the study is only focusing on IL-17 inhibitors. Um, and I think personally, and from other studies, we have seen that TNF uh, inhibitor users, when they restart therapy after a long pause, sometimes they find there is no efficacy. Um, and another interesting piece of data from this study is that 36% of patients who stopped therapy didn't flare. You know, I would say this is not a um, small number, um, and perhaps a longer study focusing on those select patients it would be interesting to figure out, you know, does number one, does that um, lack of flare last and how long? And what exactly about these patients caused them not to flare when they stopped therapy? So thanks for tuning in uh, for continued coverage of ACR 22. Please uh, visit Room Now and follow me on Twitter at Dr. RBC. Thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Robert Chow reporting for Room Now from ACR 22. 
Uh, and today I wanted to discuss a topic regarding which biologic may be better for the treatment of our diseases, especially axial spondyl arthritis. And this was a late breaking abstract, L15, and they looked at uh, secukinumab versus the biosimilar of adalimumab on radiographic progression in patients with radiographic axial spondyl arth arthritis. This was a phase 3B study of more than 800 patients. Uh, these patients were all uh, biologic naive um, with active axial spinal arthritis, and they were then randomized one to one to one uh, to secukinumab 150 milligrams, uh, 300 milligrams, and the standard dosage for adalimumab biosimilar. Uh, this was a two-year study. So at week 104, um, the percentage of patients with no radiographic progression was actually similar. Uh, roughly around 65 to 66% amongst the secukinumab 150, 300 arms, and the adalimumab by a similar arm. When they looked at uh, which patients did not develop new syndesmophytes, uh, relatively similar as well, um, about 50% in all arms, and adverse events also similar, roughly 80% in all arms, uh, with similar adverse event, uh, events that we know uh, to be present in TNF inhibitors and IL-17 inhibitors. Um, so overall, uh, it shows that, uh, you know, the use of either agent uh, really prevented uh, low or prevented radiographic progression with overall very low radiographic progression in two years. Um, the good news is, you know, they're all efficacious, obviously, um, and there's no significant difference in the two uh, mechanisms of action. Um, I think I wouldn't say the bad news, but the lukewarm news is we still don't have, uh, you know, a, a better agents every time. I would say every time we have a biologic in the axial world or the psoriatic arthritis world, uh, they tend to perform similarly. Um, but anyway, thanks for tuning in for coverage of ACR 22, um, and feel free to follow me on Twitter at Dr. RBC. Thanks.